Welcome to Subtitles, and specifically to a very special episode. Every 10 episodes, we'll have a quick break in our replacement title action to stop and think further about a topic that piqued our interest as we talked. For this fifth decile, I had more to say about episode 48, uh, The Deer Hunter, and felt like talking about other 20th century remakes, which I thought were really successful uh, in the vein of Father of the Bride, which gave us our first ever um, in-episode choice to be to be made, as opposed to an end-of-episode choice. And Matt, on the other hand, wanted to reconsider episode 49, which is Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, uh, and other albums that came out on or around 9-11. We hope you stick around for Desi's Midnight Runners. All right, so I think the way that, that Matt wants to do this and that I have ascended to is we're just going to split this in half. So he has a number of albums um, from that 9-11 period, not necessarily meaning like about 9-11, but from that, from that one, one um, should have been normal time in American life. And I've got six movies that I think are interesting because they are fairly successful remakes of an existing property. Um, I will go ahead and start by saying that I don't think my list is definitive or anything. This is not like my definitive best 20th century remakes. Um, they're just ones that have, again, sort of come to mind for me as I, as I sort of look through and think, what do I doubt will end up being a subtitles movie and what kind of things do I think would be interesting to, to show a, a gap or change. I'm going to toss it over to Matt first because I think his topic is more interesting than mine, and <laughs> that's basically why we're going to lead with him if he is if he is okay with that. Well, I think that depends on whether you're going to talk about True Grit or not, which... Oh, ah, yes, schmuck, fine. It's not 20th century. Um, what? It's not from the 20th century. I can't do it. Oh, you did say 20th, didn't you? Ah, screw that century. Um, so I want to reemphasize, uh, these are not albums about 9-11. And, I don't know, not least because albums take a little while to make. And that they came out on or shortly after 9-11 means they were made before it. So there's there's no way in which they're explicitly about the event. Um, I, I want to emphasize, too, look, y'all, I'm not here to make anyone think about 9-11 differently. I... I whatever. <laughs> um, I'm not... I'm, not <clears throat> I'm also not here to be conspiratorial or anything. Um, I want to look at albums, five albums that came out on the day, um, which was pretty major record release day uh and then five albums that came out in the ensuing months um i gave myself to the end of 2001 all of them ended up being september or october anyway which i don't know i guess feels kind of nice because they're still close to the event um and i just want to look at like how that day changes or potentially changes the narrative of even these albums um how they become kind of yoked to that major event in understandable ways, if also unfair ways. Um, and this is coming from the ways we were talking about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot as 
a emotionally I don't know, inflected by 9-11 in some way or, or perhaps lent some increased significance after that moment. Um, and how much even more recently talking about Aesop Rock's Labor Days um, where, where Tim asked me, oh, so is this the better like 9-11 album? And I hadn't even thought about that. And so that's where this theme comes from. It's not one that I uh, had been thinking about until very recently. Um, but it just made me interested, like, oh, okay, well, what other albums were impacted by that in some way? Um, and again, I'm looking at on and after, nothing that came out before, even though certainly I could have done a lot of albums that way, too. Um, but I think that also got me away from the truly heavy hitters, because the right answer is Toxicity. Uh, my personal answer is Bleed American. Those are both before 9-11, so it kind of helped to just take those out of the, the equation. Um, another one I'm taking out of the equation, because we talked about it a while back, is Jay-Z's The Blueprint, which came out on 9-11. And that's my segue into the, the five albums uh, that came out on the day. It was, a, again, a major release day. Um, and not just in that, like, it was a Tuesday, and that's when records came out then. Like, there was a lot of big stuff that came out on that day. Um, Jay-Z was front and center, um, but we talked about the blueprint a while back, so I'm going to leave that one to the side for now. Um, but that was, right, that was the big one. That was the one people knew. It was the number one album, uh, immediately after. So that was our headliner. Um, I have these in a five, four, three, two, one order. Um, I, I think they're vaguely ranked in terms of like how compelling or like how, strong i think the narrative is um we'll call that a loose ranking and maybe it's just a way to talk about them um they're certainly not ranked in terms of which ones i think are best um so jettison that from your head uh because the blueprint would be number one and it's not particularly close but we've eliminated that anyway so we'll just kind of jump into it here i'll start with the ones that came out on 9-11, uh, and at number five, we have Slayer and their album, God Hates Us All, and, uh, you know, your face is basically why it's here, <laughs> I don't think musically it's telling us or doing anything pertinent to the 9-11 period, uh, but the title, the fact that they had a shirt that was, that just said, God Hates Us All, 9-11-2001, that they were releasing before the day um, and quickly got banned everywhere. Uh, I, I find that, I don't know what I find that, um, but just that they had that shirt is kind of that, like that has to be an incredible collector's item and, and maybe a perverse way, but like, man, if you had that shirt and tried to wear it after the day, you were going to get beat. Um, and, you know, it's a Slayer album. Um, some of it is, like, I don't know, it seems honestly a bit more accessible than, like, their better stuff. Um, but, I, you know, I've, I've tipped my hand there. I also don't think it is their better stuff. Um, but, you know, they've talked about the album and, and the writing of it and leading up to the release and framed it as a lot about kind of self-control or lack thereof, but not in like uh, an addictive sense, but in the way, like I think they tended to use a loose anecdote of like 
you know, sometimes you're having a good day and then your dog dies or something or you get hit by a car and you just go, man, God really hates me today. So like kind of building out of that emotion um, and whew, it came out on the perfect day for that. If that's your, if that's your theme. Um, so I have Slayer at number five here, I guess just because of the not literally. I don't know. It's not literally irony, but I don't know. It's just ironic that this thing came out on the day. Like, how? Um, it, it's kind of perfect in a very sad way. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, that's sort of a coincidence so good that it's no longer good for them. Like, it's such a such a potent coincidence that it is no longer funny to even think about it. It's it, That's a very... I had no idea. But that's like a very fascinating... <laughs> Very fascinating thing. That's not, like I find it uncomfortably funny in a way. Yes. Um, like it's not funny, but you just kind of have to be like, really? Um, if it weren't Slayer, like they were set at that point. But if this was some up and coming like thrash or metal band, they would have been doomed. Um, you know. Luckily for Slayer, like their bones, they made in the '80s primarily and early '90s. So like they were, they were pretty set that this wasn't going to hurt them too much in the long run. But whoosh, uh, just big coincidences there. Um, number four, I have uh, Pod and their major hit "Satellite." Um, and why do I have? P.O.D. here. I think because I'm the type of person, and you know who you are if you're like me, who just can't resist uh, when boom hits, and just the here comes the boom and the the uh, the production on that court. Uh, good good stuff. <laughs> um, I have a weakness for that. So this is the one. It has boom. It has alive. Um, it has youth of the nation. Like it has the major P.O.D. hits. <clears throat> Uh, besides like Lords of Southtown. Um, I'm also pretty sure most of those got banned in the like Clearwater banning of songs after 9-11. Boom certainly did. Um, Alive, I think did in kind of a weird way. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the title track did as well. Um, right? There's a lot of just track names on here that wouldn't that, that just wouldn't go after 9-11. So I think that's, <clears throat> right, it kind of, it fits into the narrative that way. Um, but I think, too, this is, you know, P.O.D., this new metal rap rock band, um, not particular. I, I think they're memorable because they had big singles, but they're not particularly distinct, I don't think, um, in terms of, like, artistic legacy. Um, but it's the kind of thing that was popular, um, before the day and would continue to be for a while after today. And the POD kind of picks up the mantle here. Um, but I honestly, I kind of have it here because it is a, a milder form, a, a more neutered form, if you want to say that, of kind of what was happening in new metal and rap rock. Um, and certainly they have things to say. Youth of the Nation is honestly a, like interesting look at things. Um, I, I think there's you know, genuine emotion and care in that one. And like, it's actually trying to do interesting narrative stuff. Um, but that's just got totally railed over. And these were just songs that could be popular and listened to and like 
yeah, this this hits like the grunt part of me. Um, you know, sort of like me with the chorus to boom, like you just kind of feel it. And I think that's what happened to most of Satellite in general, even if these guys had something more to say uh, and something that was important then is an, and is important now. Um, but it just kind of cast casted that into relief for me, seeing that that came out on this day um, and that whatever extra these guys may have been up to, that it just wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah, anything on POD, Tim? No, though I think I think it is good to to mention the great radio banning of anything that could have, like I don't know, like Vorschach test tested its way into someone's mind as being even a hint of violence. I guess so important to to recognize that that sort of blew people's. Um, there I go again sort of like blew people's expectations up in the same way that that poor t-shirt, you know, kind of, kind of, um, took that awkward coincidence and, and got railroaded because of it. And like the, I mean, you can look up all the songs. It's the clear channel memorandum, but like, it's just based on the title of the songs too. Like most of them, (laughs) there's just nothing there, but like if your title sounded vaguely troubling or connected to the act of terror um it got banned for a while um but it, it's kind of, it's a crazy list like there's just some weird stuff on there um like there's a bunch of springsteen songs on there and it's fucking springsteen man <laughs> like that's who you want in that moment um anyway number three uh i didn't really know what to do with this one because it's not an album i like revisit ever um but it's bob dylan love and theft um and i i I put it here it's part of bob dylan or i guess one of his renaissances um but you know he had kind of a genuine one in the late 90s early 2000s where it was like a return to troubadour form in a way um and there's a lot of just like good bob dylan songs on this um he is you know embodying various uh, deadbeats and bastards and, and beaten down folk and right the the typical uh, kind of characters that you imagine Bob Dylan putting himself into, especially in the '60s and '70s. He's kind of back to that here, um, and doing so in right earnest, nuanced ways. Um, it it doesn't feel pandering. It doesn't feel bad at all like it's bob dylan doing bob dylan um and i think that is kind of why i have it here it ended up number one on paz and job for the year it ended up number one on the rolling stone list um and i think that speaks as much to after this horrific event we want to return to something we know and that feels comfortable and who better than bob dylan um like I don't know, it just feels kind of perfect that he ended up number one on so many lists after the fact to me, because it felt like, okay, here's something we know and can hang on to, and that is that Bob Dylan is great. Even if you dig into his songs, uh, and they're not particularly rah-rah in this moment, um, Bob Dylan as an institution, I think, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find an option that would have felt just more stable at the end of the year. Um, And so... 
that honestly is kind of how I think of Love and Theft, which is unfortunate to the album, but um, it's Bob Dylan being Bob Dylan. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you're not going to like the album. Um, but it just felt, I don't know, I guess it did feel like the right option at the end of the year in a way. Um, it, it was a it was a comfort choice. Um, Bob Dylan, Tim, you know him. <laughs> yes. Okay, so like in in more seriousness, the it is sort of fun to to note that Bob Dylan exists on this podcast because I feel like it's something it's something that we could do, but that we just kind of don't do. Like I don't know that this is literally the first time we have mentioned that he's real on on this thing, but like I don't know. It's it's interesting just because he is somebody who who has made so many albums within the, within the stretch of time that we, that we've got. And I know that part of your, um, part of your ethos is not to, to go for people who we have like, obviously thought about too, too much if we can help it. So I don't know, it's just sort of interesting to think about this, this latter stage, Bob Dylan. And also I didn't know about the Paz and Job thing. Like, it's sort of interesting to think like, that's the one that people look to, at the end of the year instead of Jay-Z, for, for example. Yeah, I didn't know about the Paz and Job thing either until I saw it. Um, so that one was, was a surprise. Um, because, yeah, I, would have, I honestly just assumed it was the Strokes. Um, Jay-Z would have also made a lot of sense. Like, there were just other albums that I was like, oh, yeah, that was probably number one on a lot of lists. But Bob Dylan snuck it in there. Um, but, yeah, I think it's the first time I've... I've used his name on the podcast and it's, I don't like, he has a ton of albums that I could choose, but uh, uh, you know, spoilers, there's none down the line. I don't think I'm going to use any either. Um, so, you know, kudos to Bob Dylan. He's been mildly successful and good for him. Doesn't need um, our help. <laughs> he, he was in Lou and Davis. I don't, I don't know what more you could want. <laughs> um, number two, which I think is Tim's favorite. Maybe ever. It's glitter. Yeah. Yeah. Mariah Carey's famous, 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 famous bomb. Uh, this album got absolutely shit canned as soon as it got released. And, you know, in the past few years, there's been an attempt to like reclaim it, to say it was a, a misunderstood masterpiece. I'm here for it, honestly. Like This thing got <laughs> so hammered that I love anyone willing to defend the thing. Like That part of that contrarian part of me just takes over. Um, uh, or not even contrarian, just the like, yeah, stump for what you love, man. And if that's glitter, good for you. Um, you know, I, but looking back, like, people didn't like the 80s. 80s disco-ness of it all um and there was a lot of shots at like just how many guest features there are on the album but i'm like i don't know that's not reason to call it like historically bad like that's just reason to not like it but like i, I don't quite i can't re-access that moment in 2001 where i remember this thing getting shat on but like i don't remember the like why the level of vitriol was that much um I think, here's my crazy theory, and this is why it's number two, uh, is that it because it came out on, is that because 
is because it came out on this day. And, man, no one was ready for fun. <laughs> um, it was just, like, victim of circumstance, I think. Um, it, even if you look at, the co- like, the album cover, it's just different from all the other ones I'm pulling out here, from all the other stuff that was coming out on that day. Like, I think it was just a level of happy and... Uh, I mean, it, it's a generally sexually focused album, and I, just, I and it's Mariah Carey. Like, I just don't think it was the right moment, and that it came out on that day. Um, people weren't ready for it in a way, which is astounding, given how just nuclear Mariah Carey was through the whole '90s. Um, so I, I, like, I still don't quite get why we all decided, nope, time to turn on her here. Um, but I think some of it has to do with, like, it's just so out of step with the break that that day causes and the kind of stuff that is going to be uh, comforting or, like, solace-inducing or just that we really wanted in music right after that. Um, there is kind of this weird, like, pop break in that moment, and I think Glitter really suffers for coming out on that literal break line. Um but yeah, if nothing else, just go back and listen to Glitter to see, I don't know, to, to try and access a moment of like, why was this the most hated thing for the longest time? Um, and I guess see how you feel about it. Are you part of the uh, the reclamation project of Glitter, or do you think this is a, uh, a text best left to the past? I mean, the thing about, about the album is just like, it stands out to me as such a perfect distillation of the unpreparedness of the world for 9-11, of of just like, it is such a, you could not design, this is another one of those coincidences so good it's actually bad, but like, you could not design a better way to just show that people were unprepared for something truly terrible happening in their lives it's another Mariah Carey album. It's a slightly ridiculous Mariah Carey album. Everybody loves that woman. She has more platinum records than God. And and yet, and yet, people people just choose to absolutely destroy this one as well. It just it is a very it is so perfect. It is just so so perfect. And and I really I really wonder how we managed to get an actual metaphor in our lives, you know? Like, this might be the best metaphor for the world that I have that I think we've had until that ship got stuck in the Suez Canal and everybody was posting that little, like, that little backhoe thing trying to push the, the giant boat, like, I think for, what was it, like, 20 years? For 20 years, that might be the most powerful metaphor for the world that I I think you could have. Uh, Man, I don't know if anything's ever going to top that one, but um, I'll just add that uh, Stephen Thomas Erlewine, who is a music critic and reviewer who's written all over the place, um, so I'm not going to attach him to one, um, but he called this quote the pop equivalent of Chernobyl. Um, so if you want a feeling for where we were at, 
There you go. Um, number one. Tim, I think you know what it is, my process of elimination and hearing me talk about them somewhat. Uh, first, let's do some uh, some also-rans. You want to okay. do some also-rans? Yeah, yeah we okay. got the time. Just a quick mention of artists here who also released albums on, on 9-11. Uh, Dream Theater, whose initial album cover had the Twin Towers on fire. Um, speaking of perverse collector's items, that one absolutely is. Um, so Dream Theater releases an album. Uh, ben Folds drops an album that is minus his five, but is Ben Foldsy all the way. And, you know, it's it's fun. It's entertaining. It's Ben Folds. Um, the Microphones released The Glow Part 2, which I'm totally off-brand and not putting that in this top five, but whew, good stuff. And uh, Soil, a forgotten new metal post-grunge band that... I listened to this album again yesterday and remembered like half of it. And I don't know what that says about me, <laughs> but they released one too. It held up surprisingly. Okay. But let's get to number one, which I don't even think you could say it held up. Well, it's Nickelback. Uh, now maybe you know why I'm, I'm stuttering with what I think the reaction to this album is. Um, because on the one hand, it sells as much as anyone, anything, ever. Um, it's Silver Side Up. It's the one with How You Remind Me. It has some other hits on there, too, but it's the one with How You Remind Me. <laughs> and I have a screed on Nickelback that I'm going to try and tamper down here. Um, I think similar to how... We just weren't ready for what Mariah Carey was up to for that like level of joyful, silly bombast. Um, we were absolutely ready for what Nickelback was up to in this down-tuned, mumbly, um, utterly vague kind of butt rock. And it's, you know, dirty in all the right ways, even though it's like lavishly produced really um it is grumpy in all the right ways and yet it is defanged in all the right ways um i think it is just kind of emblematically perfect for like what we needed i suppose right after and and what we deserved for a long time after um and i say that as someone who will defend nickelback because as bad as you think they are you're wrong um are they mediocre? Yes. Is something like How You Remind Me a damn good pop song? Yes, it is. <laughs> and I think, you know, we hate them because of how successful they got. And for not being, like, particularly good in the way that we want our artists to be good. And I don't know, just kind of fuck off. Like, good for them. They made money. And... They're really popular. Whatever. That doesn't affect me. <laughs> um, so I don't look at them with side eye. And I don't think of them as like uh, malicious actors in artistry. Um, can you hate on them for circumstance while other better artists and, and let's say more deserving ones uh, kind of wallow? Sure. Uh, but 
that's not really Nickelback's fault. They were clear about what they wanted to be from the get-go, and that's true on Silver Side Up, and it's what we decided we wanted for a while, and they sold in absolute gangbusters, and good for them. Um, but I just think this is kind of perfectly emblematic of the kind of rock in particular that we were going to want for the months and, and years after this this moment. Um, Tim, Nickelback? <laughs> Uh, Topeka, Kansas, feeling helpless in the wake of the horrible September 11th terrorist attacks that killed thousands. Christine Pearson baked a cake and decorated it like an American flag Monday. There's just something in that that opening opening line, the lead to that onion story. Um, it's the same thing, right? Just like, we're not really sure what to do, and the best thing to do is a vague signifier if, if you don't really know what to do, because if it doesn't work out, it's okay. It was so vague anyway. <laughs> you just sort of feel like you have to do something. Nickelback fills that void um, in, a, in a way that Mariah Carey simply could not. And, and I was about to say, that's a world I don't want to live in, and it turns out that's true. So, like, that's the... That's the Nickelback guarantee as far as Silverside Up goes for for being the 9-11 release. Silverside Up is an album that you can absolutely turn your brain off to, and I mean that as both a criticism and as praise. Um, I, we need stuff like that to recognize the Mariah Carey's of the world. And also, I think sometimes we just need to turn our brains off and... You know, just grunt along to Chad Kroger and Nickelback. There are worse ways to spend your day if you need your brain off. Um, so those are my five that came out on literal 9-11. My second half will be ones that came out uh, shortly after, but we'll kick it to Tim here. <laughs> All right, so since Matt started talking, I decided to change what I was doing again. I'm not changing it that much. I'm keeping 20th Century Successful Remakes, but what I'm doing... It's I'm going for three movies where I prefer the original to the remake, and then three movies where I prefer the remake to the original. So that's that's my final word on it, because I've started talking now, and I can't change it. Um, I'm just going to go chronologically for this, I think. Um, and I'll go chronologically by when, by when the remake came out. So in 1940, His Girl Friday is released. It's the Howard Hawks movie. Um, with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, which has become kind of the, uh, kind of a go-to screwball comedy for a lot of people. It is, I think, referenced about as much as anything that's not bringing up baby as far as screwballs go. Maybe it happened one night because it got the, the Oscar wins. Um, but His Girl Friday is just like a, a really classic example of the form. It has the rapidest dialogue, I think, I think you could possibly hope for. It is a great way to figure out how to do the subtitles on your TV because it's it's a movie where the closed captioning is not a bad idea. Um, and it, it's, it's very popular. Part of the reason it's so popular, I think, is because it is in the public domain. It is available to watch, um, like, on YouTube, on Amazon. Like, it's the kind of thing that's endlessly discoverable because you don't have to pay to, to do it. Um, and the story in His Girl Friday, of course, is about a man trying to get his wife back. Basically, she is 
about to marry another man, um, and and he knows that he wants his wife back because she's a wonderful journalist, and he, <laughs> the romance between them is so is so sublimated. Like the idea that Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell might be an appropriate romantic pairing is is absolutely not important to that movie. And the reason why it doesn't matter at all is because the original text is the front page, which is a 1931 movie uh, directed by Lewis Milestone. And something that I really like about the front page is that they didn't change the names. It's still Walter and Hildy, but in this case, Hildy is short for Hildegard, and <laughs> Hildegard is played by Pat O'Brien, who is a guy, um, and Walter is played by Adolf Manju. It's a, it's a film which has been remade straight a few times as well. Like, there's a Billy Wilder version of this that I've never seen. I kind of don't have the strength to go looking for it. Um, there's, there's a remake of His Girl Friday, too, which likewise don't have the strength to go looking for. What I like about the front page more is that I think it does a better job at some newspaper sat, uh, satire, which is something which I think we've kind of lost the ability to do well. Um, there's obviously Network, which is a great example of TV satire, but like satirizing the news media is important. I think it is a good thing for people in media to sort of poke holes at the media sometimes. And while it is less fiery and less rapid and less um, sexy. I mean, it's definitely less sexy than uh, than His Girl Friday, and it features far fewer scenes with people with hats, um, which which would just absolutely break the necks of modern women that Rosalind Russell manages to wear about anyway. Um, it's a, it's a film which I think is just a, a stronger. A stronger indictment of of the of the media. So, like in His Girl Friday and in the front page, there's that sequence where a young woman who has felt some sympathy for the wrongly condemned uh, convict at the center of the plot, um, she throws herself out a window, out of the the newspaper window um, across from the courthouse. She does that in both films, and. In His Girl Friday, it's something they kind of have to gloss over a little bit. Like, it's so sudden that it, it really shocks, but it doesn't linger. Um, we're back to the jokes very quickly with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell hiding that poor man inside a desk. And they hide the man inside the desk in the front page, too. But you get a much stronger sense that this is someone's fault. Um... The girl in the front page just feels less daffy to me. She feels a little bit, a little bit less, um, less random, I guess. She feels less like she has to throw herself out and more like she chooses to throw herself out this window as a sign of, of protest. Um, and it's, it's just a more effective moment. I think they spend more energy on the newspaper men as well. Uh, for example, Edward Everett Horton is in here, who is just a wonderful supporting actor, one of the great character actors in Hollywood history. Um, giving a little bit more focus, a little bit more, um, 
a little bit more time to the people in the newsroom and and not focusing so much on the central pairing just makes that one work better for me. This is this is a heretical opinion. I know the front page is like good and people like the front page, but most people definitely go for his girl Friday instead. Um, even the, even if the front page has no line quite as funny as Cary Grant saying that the guy played by Ralph Bellamy looks like Ralph Bellamy. There's not anything quite as zany in the front page, but I just think it's a more complete movie. Um, I assume that His Girl Friday, at the very least, is in your is in your list of movies you have come across. Yeah, um, a while back, though, so I don't honestly remember it that well, but I remember it being fun. It's a lot of fun. It's definitely a, a really entertaining movie. Um, but again, I'm just sort of a, a front page stan if it comes down to the two of them. The second one that we're going to chat about is our first uh, AFI movie, Ben Hur, the 1959 Best Picture winner directed by William Wyler. This is, of course, a remake. Um, it is a remake that won Best Picture because there is a very similar uh, film version of this from the silent era, which I much prefer. Uh, this is Fred Niblo's Ben Hur: Colon A Tale of the Christ uh, from 1925. And simply put, the reason why I have the silent Ben-Hur ahead of the sound Ben-Hur is because of the acting. Um, I'm, I've not been shy about saying that like Charlton Heston is kind of, is kind of weirdly perfect for Ben-Hur because it's a role that mostly requires him to bare his teeth like a scared animal. But Charlton Heston was also not a good actor by, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and as much as I like Stephen Boyd in in that um, that opposing part um, as the Messina to Judah, I think I think having two better actors giving two better performances just kind of makes the difference for me. Um, the film the film slows all the way down once Messina dies in. Um, in either version of Ben-Hur, in any version of Ben-Hur. After the chariot race, the movie just comes to a grinding halt as Judah starts looking for his, um, for his leprosy-riddled mother and, and sister. And there's less time given to that in Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, which I appreciate. It's a movie which is shorter. It is a significantly shorter movie, though still very much an epic, still a huge, huge picture. But the difference in this is that Ramon Navarro as Judah is just such a such a different presence than Heston. He's less strong. He's less like physically strong. He's more of this like wiry, clever kind of character as opposed to I'm Charlton Heston and I'm angry. Look at my fangs. Um, I just I just really prefer Navarro's performance. But the, the huge difference between the two is in Francis X. Bushman, who's playing Messina in this. And it's, again, it's not a dig at Stephen Boyd, who I think is very, very good in the 59 version. It's just that in the 25 version, the operatic, and I say this about a silent movie, and I understand that this is like a very silly thing to say, but there is an operatic quality to what Bushman is doing. Again, one of the great silent stars of all time 
first of all, he's huge. Like, he's this giant muscle man. He's super pale. He's got all of this eyeliner on. Uh, he has these incredibly bright eyes. And he's just this really fascinating, impossible figure to ignore. And he just looks so much bigger than Navarro. And he plays to... I don't know, maybe the back of the house isn't strong enough. Like, he plays to a point that's several miles behind the back of the movie theater. He is just absolutely trying to rip the screen apart with his bare hands. And it makes it makes the movie feel a little bit more like there's a greater obstacle for Judah to overcome. Um, obviously, plenty of bad things happen to Charlton Heston. But it doesn't feel like Stephen Boyd is this implacable kind of enemy. The situation in The 59 Ben-Hur is the enemy, less than Boyd is the enemy, and what I love about the 25 version is that Bushman is the enemy, and that defeating him is going to feel like defeating the, the last boss in a video game. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my Ben Hur Tale of the Christ deal. I will say it is a movie with a body count. <laughs> um, it is it is a movie that definitely killed people and horses during their chariot race business. Um, so congratulations to the Weiler Ben Hur for being a less fatal production. Um, I'm not going to say a non fatal production, but a less fatal production. Um, but A Tale of the Christ definitely has a body count that it does not... Nobody should have died for that movie. Um, but it is it is the one that I prefer <laughs> between the two. Uh, taking shots at, the, at, I don't know, I suppose American canon? <laughs> it seems like it. anyway that like Ben-Hur is so instantiated in, in the thing that... Um, I This is one that like I knew to be... I knew that there were several adaptations, but honestly knew none of the other ones. Um, so it's always been in this weird space for me where, like, I know other people have done this, but the only one I know is, like, The Ben-Hur. Yeah, I think... I'm trying to decide if there's... Um, I would probably... I would probably say that the... This Ben-Hur is probably a little bit better known than the Ten Commandments, um, the original DeMille Ten Commandments, as opposed to the, the 50s one. Um, but there is that same sense of, like, this is our first crack at a major storyline that we really like, the biblical sword and sandals epic kind of thing. Um, the religious angle that, of course, is going to make a lot of people really flock to it. Um... Yeah, I am. Um, I just, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily alone in this. I think I probably have more, I probably have more people who feel about um, the original Ben-Hur than feel about the front page. Like, I think, I think I'm a little bit less on an island here. But it is, it is a movie that if I had to, if I had to watch or even recommend one or the other, I would, I would just go with, uh, with the Fred Niblo version. Um even though I would take William Wyler's career in a heartbeat over Fred's. Um, last one of, of originals that I like more than the remakes. Much prefer the 1932 Scarface, The Shame of a Nation, to the 1983 Scarface. Um, 
and I'm just I'm just all about Paul Muni in this again. It's not it's not that Al Pacino is bad in Scarface. I think he's doing a pretty good job. Um, but there's so much bloat in that movie that is not just about the '80s. It's just not. It's just not all the way about the '80s. I think it's very clever, and I'm gonna. I want to give Scarface the '83 version the credit that it's that it deserves. It is very smart to take this '30s gangster epic and then update it to the 1980s and to really jack up everything and to change the type of crime, to change the type of immigrant, um, to retain the idea of the world as yours. I think it does a really good job at all of that. Unfortunately, Brian De Palma and Oliver Stone don't do a better job at doing any of those things than the original Scarface does. Um, the original Scarface is, again, it's, it's one of the, the gangster movies that, um, that came out in the early 1930s. It is part of that crop. I think it's actually the last, um, the last of the group between itself, the public enemy and little Caesar, which are like the Holy Trinity of your old fashioned gangster movies. Um, this one is definitely more about Capone than anything else. So like, there's less of, um, in the 83 version, it sort of doesn't go for an obvious comparison to, to like a real person in the 32 version. I think we are, we are absolutely meant to think that, um, that this is Al Capone, basically that Paul Muni is doing an Al Capone impression. Um, it's another movie, which like the front page is written by Ben Hecht. This one also had Howard Hughes behind it. Um, giving some of his some of his fortune to make sure that this one got made. I just think that this has a much sadder a much sadder approach to this idea um, of the world is yours. And I think in 1932 it was easier to believe in the idea of the American dream of class mobility than it is in the 1980s. Um not that, not that it was like true then either, but I think that there was more of a, more of a cultural understanding that it was possible. There was more like ability for someone to leave abject poverty and hit working class back in the, in the late twenties, early thirties. I, I feel like that is distinctly likely, um, because once you get into the eighties and let alone the present day, the stratification is so, so set in stone, um, but this film just has, again, it has the stronger performance at the center. It does more interesting work connecting it to the actual crime in America, the, the gangland-style crime that people were genuinely concerned about. And if there is one thing that about the film that's kind of annoying is that it does, <laughs> it does have some sequences where the movie just absolutely grinds to a halt and is like, you know what's bad? This. Crime is so bad. It is so terrible that this guy exists. Because the movie is very aware that it makes the Paul Muni character, uh, Tony Camonti, it makes him look like the coolest dude in the world who does absolutely anything he wants to do. Um, and Muni, who is this sort of seedy-looking guy, a 
one of those great one of those great character actors who happened to be a giant movie star, like just one of the great actors ever, um, is just playing this thing to the hilt. Um, it is also, oh, I don't know that it's literally half the time of Scarface, but it's like half the time of Scarface, and that's something to its credit as well. Um, I just, again, just really strongly prefer this original version. Um, which doesn't have the bloat, doesn't have the fat, needs no liposuction, is just a mean little movie um, with some really mean performances. I don't know what you expect when Oliver Stone was strung out on cocaine while they made this thing. Like, of course it's going to be three hours long. <laughs> I mean, and that's that's the other thing. Is like, as didactic as as the 32 film has to be like, it's a pre-code movie, but there were, there were some censors who got in on this. The 83 version is somehow even more didactic. Like it just, it is somehow even more preachy than the one that says, you know, what's bad crime. Like it's, it's just a very strange, a very strange thing. As a fan of most things, De Palma, uh, I will say it's uh, it's important that the '83 Scarface begins like the mo- the mobility is not possible at all unless they murder mm-hmm. yeah. at the very beginning mm-hmm. and like that just, like just that choice alone I'm like okay that helps immensely in terms of like what this narrative can do. Um, I haven't seen the earlier one. Um, I am generally ambivalent on Oliver Stone, but a fan of De Palma's insanity. Um, so I, I like, I like the 83, but it, it is, it's long, man. And we really only remember the ending. And the, I mean, there's, there's a better ending in this one too. I even think that the kind of, the kind of incestuous interest that Tony has in his sister in the 32 is done better than the 83. Like there's, it's less, again, it's, it's kind of less overt. It's this incredible jealousy and the movie just kind of lets you see, Oh, okay. Well, this is what he wants to do. Um, but we can't say it cause it's 1932 and that would be bad taste. And then in the 83 version, it's like, why, why do you have to tell us? <laughs> like, it's very obvious. Why is this, why is this a giant reveal at the end of the movie? Like we haven't figured this out already. It's, it's, it's just, again, it's, it's more didactic and it's more played out in the, um, in the, in the 83. And part of this is, I just think Ben Hecht was a better writer than Stone is. Bless Oliver Stone, but I, I would just take Hecht. 9-11? <laughs> Mountains of cocaine. Um, so five albums uh, later in 2001 now, and same as before, I'll go through this one a little bit more quickly because it's not the literal day, um, which is just how like it's easy to shift the narrative of, this al- of these albums based on when they came out, when again, none of them are about the thing. None of them could have been about the thing, uh, nor should we say that they are. Uh, number five is actually a tie um, because... I'm me, and I really just wanted to give shine to both uh, Tenacious D's self-titled uh, debut and The Hives' is your new favorite band. Um, Tenacious D, 
Tenacious D comes out on September 25th, and your new favorite band comes out on October 22nd. And there's a tie here because I like I was gonna make the same argument with both of them, and I figured, okay, let's just put them together. Um, big dumb silly rock. That is, like, if you're Tenacious D, it's in the classic rock canon, and if you're the Hives, it's in the emerging garage rock scene. Uh, but they are fun and funny and low stakes for anyone who just wanted to rock out for a minute like after after 9-11 uh, indeed through today these are two albums that are just still a hell of a lot of fun to listen to um so that's why they're both here like i, I think it's just really good really proficient rock music really exciting uh but very low stakes and that's on purpose um and like that's what they wanted to be making it's not a uh, misunderstanding it's a no these are just funny people uh making something cool um and having opinions about pants if you're the hives number four uh is la tigra and their album feminist sweepstakes which comes out on october 16th yes uh and la tigra is kathleen hannah's project uh after bikini kill um and it's of a piece in a lot of ways. The, the major difference, I think, is they add a lot of electronic features. Um, and that's that's what's most interesting about this album to me, I think. Um, like, there's a lot of just program drumming in particular. It has this very um, almost... What was the name? Was that program just called GarageBand or whatever? Yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah, those... Um, those like pre-programmed drum loops. Um, so this kind of basic, just repetitive rhythms like across this whole thing. Um, but over top of that, fun guitar flourishes um, and extra electronic noise. Like there's a, a steadiness to it and a roteness to it um, that is layered over with um, a lot of tension. But through the whole thing, and this is why it's really number four, like it just sounds like an exhausted album. Um, and it's it's of a piece with Hannah's, uh, you know, usual leftist feminist um, uh, queer positive uh, lyrics, um, uh, her or her worldview, her philosophy, whatever you want to call it. Like, right, lyrically, you're getting similar stuff from her, and it's cutting, it's 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 vital, um, it's illuminating, right? It's all these things still. It's still Kathleen Hannah. Um, but there's a way in which this album is at once this really interesting combination of things, particularly still in 2001, where we're not hearing a lot of like direct grafting of indie rock and electronic stuff. Um, but there's a way in which it just sounds throughout the whole thing just kind of exhausted or depressed or like the vocals are uh, monotone in some places, like they're just kind of shifted down. It feels like the air is out of the music. Um, and obviously like, right. I think the fit there is kind of obvious. Like there's, there's this vital message, uh, and this interesting playfulness to the thing, but it just sounds tired. Um, and I think you could read that in terms of like Hannah tired. Like she just has to keep doing the same things, like saying the same things. Um, as important as they are, uh, but I don't know, I think that feeling is just particularly uh, pertinent to that period. Um, I'll do number three, and then I'll, I'll 
see if you have any thoughts, Tim. Number three is The Photo Album by Death Cab for Cutie. Uh, came out on October 9th. Is it here because it's me and I love this album? Maybe. Uh, it's also here because, well, movie script ending, I think, is the symbol here. Um, that song is searching and wanting and uh, st- stumbly, I guess. Like It's a beautiful song. Um, and it's about just aimlessness, really. Um, and the loss of that movie script ending, really, or not even the loss of it, just the realization that it never was a thing. It never was there. Um, so there's an, an excitement that opens that song. It's um, kind of, it's, I don't know, kind of bouncy in a way. Like it, it's, uh, it has a sense of forward progression. It has a sense of movement. It has a sense of we're going to something uplifting. Um, and then it's another song that just kind of, not exhausts itself in terms of like tempo or anything, but it just starts to sound more and more tired, more and more resigned, um, especially as Gibbard um, unfolds his, you know, kind of his, not short story in that, but like his anecdote of, right, having these grand visions of moving to to LA, um, missing home and all of that, like it not being that what all you know, what we expect from all the lies we get about the possibility, um, about the, uh, you know, about the chance for just massive success, um, about how, you know, you can just be somewhat utterly different there. Like, right, this is a song and this is an album about maybe, but probably not. Um, and that the people we are and the places we are are important too. And so there's, there's a general tiredness to this album too, and a general aimlessness of, fuck what now um and you know on october 9th a lot of people thinking fuck what now um so the photo album is a much more personal endeavor um uh it's an emo endeavor um, but i think it fits pretty well for you know the month after any thoughts on those three tim i think the fatigue thing is is important um because that's the kind of thing that i feel like doesn't show up as much in the um, in the media that people like make about 9/11, like there's that sense of of like overwhelmingness is part of it, but that never quite gets to the fatigue that's kind of inevitably going to come from that. Like you can only feel so much for so long before you start to shut down. It doesn't matter how in touch with your feelings you are. Um, so I think that's a smart a smart way to go. And also, just zero idea that the or that the Tenacious D album came out two weeks after 9-11. I had no idea that was that was the case. Yeah, I'm really shoving that one in on a like hindsight narrative. That one you're never gonna hear Tenacious D's debut album, which came out right at like right, that's just not a thing with that album. And great, I'm glad, because still hilarious album. Um and they had had the show before that, so like it more or less been workshopping the material. So like there's a way in which that album spans a lot of time. Um, but the, the full thing drops yep, two weeks after it's, uh, that one is actually kind of a funny coincidence. Like really tenacious D. <laughs> um, we all needed the D man. Uh, number two, oh, I was just going to say too, like, right. Ex- 
exactly what you're saying is what we're experiencing with COVID. Like, it's overwhelming, mm-hmm. and we're just all fucking tired. <laughs> like, you can only do so much. Um, number two is Tori Amos uh, and Strange Little Girls, which comes out September 17th. Um, in the conceit of Strange Little Girls, it, it's a cover record, essentially. Um, it's Tori Amos taking... Uh, or, or doing a bunch of covers of, in general, pretty famous songs, um, but rewriting them slightly so that they're from a, uh, a female perspective, if not a sort of radically feminist perspective. Um, so this is something that we see in, in literature quite a bit. Um, uh, we see it in you know, in, in movies and music and TV and all these things too. I think it's a, a bigger thing in literature. Um, but this is just a full album of Tori Amos taking f- classics, really. Um, and some odd choices too. We have stuff like Enjoy the Silence by Depeche Mode, um, which she makes even more haunting somehow. That's a really good song. Um, we have a Tom Waits jam on here. We have Happiness is a Warm Gun, the Beatles song. We have Raining Blood. Calling back to Slayer from earlier in the episode, uh, we have a Lou Reed jam and uh, 97 Bonnie and Clyde from the Slim Shady LP. Um, so Amos is a treasure uh, and just the sheer variety of, of stuff she can take on here and really make her own. Like Something like Enjoy the Silence. I know that song very, very well, the Depeche Mode, and there's still like... Not oh, like there's still some runway I need to take to actually hear the song when Tori Amos is doing it. Like it's just utterly hers in a way um, that it takes me a while to be like, oh, okay, there's the like, there's the melody, or like there's the enjoy the silence that I know from Depeche Mode, um, and it's very arresting. And I think that's, I think right now I'm just talking about why this album is really good and why you should go listen to it and listen to Tori Amos in general. Um, <clears throat> But I'm, I'm interested in this one as a, what, six days after? Um, because it's another one, you know, she's really singer, singer-songwritery on this one. Um, it is pretty sparse in some places, I think, to its benefit. Um, it, it's pretty, it's not fatigued necessarily, but there's just a deep bone sadness to it. Um, there's a, like, just deep in your soul kind of... I guess rumination in, in places, but also just sadness, as I said, uh, like trying to dig into these songs and make them something different. And like the sadness that would come with imagining them from a female perspective um, or from a different point of view, like right, all of the, the trauma and the terror that that's going to dredge up when you do that, that it's not inherently a happy thing. Um so I think there's a couple of reasons I have this here. One, at sort of a meta level, like that process of what does it mean to find meaning in these things? And right, six days after, we're still in shock, but we're starting to do that work. And whatever you dig up is going to be sad. It's going to be traumatic. It is going to be this deep, deep hurt. Um, and I think, you know, we can see Tori Amos doing that across this album. Um, and also I put it here for, I guess, kind of a sad reason, because I think it's this really cool project that and Tori Amos is kind of part of this lineage of just major 90s uh, like female 
artists, uh, I don't want to say just pop, but like pop and rock artists, um, you know, Tori Amos, Liz Fair, uh, Alanis, uh, Fiona Apple, Cheryl Crow, uh, you know, like all of these, oh, PJ Harvey, like, um, right, all of these artists who are, are important and doing just incredible work. And I feel like that just lost steam after 9-11. Not that those artists personally weren't still making stuff or not that other great up-and-coming ones were emerging, um, but like it just didn't feel like it had the same cachet after. Um, and Strange Little Girls kind of sits on this on this line of like doing this really interesting and important work. And I think it just utterly loses steam after that. Um, but great album. Great, great album. Any any thoughts on Tori Amos, Tim? I did not know that this album existed, which is a shame because it sounds like one that I'd be super interested in. Um, she is just like just a really fascinating figure in, in a lot of ways. Like if there is if there is someone who you would like to have come out with this this sort of cover album and to do a lot of these very like masculine songs in a very different way, I feel like. I feel like she she has to be like a top three choice to do that. Yeah, I think Fiona is my personal number one, but like, I mean, I have proof positive here from Tori Amos, and the results are good, um, <laughs> very good. Um, all right, so I, I'm kind of sad not to put that one number one, but number one is uh, I think it speaks to kind of the strength of it. It's uh, Drive By Truckers and their album Southern Rock Opera came out on September 12th um, and the conceit of Southern Rock Opera which the title is literal is it's following a fictional rock band as they like try and make their way you know we know this this trope um, but that's filtered through Leonard Skinnerd um, and their story and those two threads are kind of woven together throughout there's a song you know, there there are well, several songs explicitly about Skinner, including one about the Skinner, um, uh, Neil Young. I don't know, not really fight. Like we made it a fight, but those two actually liked each other. And Sweet Home Alabama is a funny and like excoriating song if you actually listen to it. Um, so like, there's that kind of imagined fight between Ronnie and Neil. Um, and Patterson Hood goes through that and it really mines that for not just pathos, but like, again, try it, like does this work of digging meaning out of this thing that is just, uh, calcified at that point. Um, and that's a lot of what Southern rock opera is doing in general. That song happens pretty early. Um, and what the drive by truckers here are doing primarily in addition to this interesting narrative weaving, uh, is trying to make sense of their own relationship with the South um, and with Alabama in particular. Um, and it's a place that, right, Patterson Hood writing most of the lyrics here, um, that they're very skeptical of and critical of and hate to some degree, but that they just inherent, like it is the place from which they come and that is important. And there's a lot that they want to take forward from that. And there's a lot they're proud of. Um, and there's a lot to, uh, to, to criticize too there's a lot to not like but it, it's really 
it's this very nuanced analysis of what it means to be from that place and what it means for them as right, aspiring and fairly progressive artists um, that still feel attachment to this 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 place that is so easily disparaged. Um, so it's 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 super interesting work throughout. Um, it's a great album, and a lot of people have have spent a lot of words on it, and better ones than I could. Um, but it comes out the day after and all of this nuanced analysis that it's doing. I don't think you're right. I don't think you hear Southern rock opera like as kind of the epitome of the post nine 11 album in any way. Um, but just all this, this detailed nuanced analysis that it's doing, like I think that just went out the door. Um, and much like it did with, you know, the Skinner Neil Young fight, uh, it just becomes this, I don't know, easy target that we don't really look into. Um, and Southern rock opera maybe just becomes this like, oh yeah, the South, blah, 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 blah. Um, and that's not what it is. Like, it is proud, um, but it's not that. And that it comes out the day after. I don't know, I think that limited just any, like, widespread engagement we were actually going to have with this album. And that's sad because it's doing a lot of of really cool work. Um, but it just became a signifier, really. Like, it just became Southern rock opera. Um, it didn't become the kind of nuanced tragedy that it was, that it is, that it was meant to be. So Drive-By Truckers is number one here. That's another interesting album I've never heard of before, though I, I feel, I feel silly not knowing a Tori Amos album, but I feel sort of less silly about about this band, which sounds like they've been doing really cool work, but have not like reached that like giant mainstream level of success. Um, yeah, another another like concept album for you too. It just it seems like you, like you were saying like it, it was not the time to be doing a concept album. It was the time to be telling people that this is how you remind me who I really am. You know, something that's just a little bit more vague than than what sounds like a really thought out um, set of lyrics and, and music that goes with it. Everyone was shocked and tired and no one wanted to think. Um, and like, I get it. The day after in particular, I get it. Um, it's sad for this album. That is... That is exhausted in a different way um, i think exhausted by like right narratives of the south by how patterson feels like he has to justify himself constantly and how the whole band does um uh how the ways in which they want to delineate themselves but the ways in which they are proud of this legacy the ways in which like skinner is this much more interesting band especially early skinner than like we tend to give them credit for um Right, it's doing all this stuff, and it's exhausted by all those narratives, and then it just runs into, yeah, no, it's not going to happen right now. Um, so, a victim of circumstance there. The, the good thing is, right, this is an album that has maintained, um, you know, as you were saying, this is not a band that really broke big, um, but it had they, you know, they maintain their following. This one has maintained a legacy. Like this is an album people know and will love. Um, so at least we can say that. But yeah, Jason Isbell was actually in this band for like six years. Um, and he is much more popular now. Um, but yeah, Drive-By Truckers has just been doing the work for 25, 30 years now. And 
they are number one on the post 9-11 releases. Good for them. Alright, so heading to movies where the remake um, is something that I like more than the original. Cape Fear, generally part of what people think of as like that bottom half, maybe even bottom third, uh, Martin Scorsese world. Um, which, just incidentally, there are a number of bottom half Martin Scorsese movies that I think are just like truly outstanding so like that's everything from like silence in the aviator to gangs of new york and cape fear um bringing out the dead kundun new york new york like i don't know i really like his bottom half stuff but anyway um it's the film in which robert de niro absolutely terrorizes nick nolte and his family in a very personal way and in which Robert De Niro terrorizes us with one of the most fascinating Southern accents I've ever heard in a movie. Um, what I love about the remake is that it just is, is saying everything should be turned up to 11. There is no reason why we should take this revenge story and, like, tamp it down or make it more realistic. You know what we think is a good idea? We should just have Robert De Niro grab the underside of a car and make us believe that he held on to said car driving on the highway. Like, no. No. That's not possible, and yet it has to be possible, because this movie is insane. And I just love the insanity. I love the loud laughter with the cigar in the movie theater. I love the way that he sits on the, on the, um, the fence slash gate outside the house while the fireworks are going off behind him. Like, it's just, it's just such a balls out movie and it's so ludicrous. And that's what makes it genuinely kind of terrifying because like in the beginning, it just feels ridiculous. And then after about an hour or so, you find yourself getting Stockholm syndrome into the Southern accents that everyone's doing. And you start to kind of believe that the De Niro character is actually, like, a supernatural being who can do anything. And I just, I love the, how manic and strange that movie is. Um, I think that most people would probably take the original, though, which is from 1961, uh, directed by J. Lee Thompson and, or 1962, I think. Is it 62? I think it's 62. Um, but it's directed by J. Lee Thompson. It stars... Uh, Gregory Peck in the Nick Nolte role, and it stars Robert Mitchum in the Robert De Niro role. Um, and it's 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 a really, really great late noir. I think it gets much more into the idea that um that the the lawyer character has done something wrong. Like I think I think that one's a little bit more grounded in this idea that he did not defend his client as well as he should have. Um, and Mitchum is not playing the world's greatest, <laughs> the world's greatest psycho who has like Michael Myers DNA in him in this sort of sense that you can't actually kill him. Um, it's a, it's a film which is just significantly more grounded and it's a good, good movie. It's just not one, um, it's just not one that I've gravitated to in the same way that I gravitated to the the sheer ridiculousness of, of the Scorsese version um, of the same material. Uh, 
I know what you're gonna say, so we may as well we may as well clear the lane for that a little. Uh, you're all wrong, and the best version is the Simpsons episode <laughs> from season five, um, called Cape Fear. If you put an E on the end of fear, I rest my case. <laughs> all right, moving right along. In 1998, uh, there is a version of the Parent Trap by Nancy Myers, who is kind of the patron saint of this episode uh, anyway for me. Um, obviously, Father of the Bride is written by Nancy Myers. It's a remake of Father of the Bride. Um, and, and, of course, we sort of talked about some other movies in this, in this section um, that are remakes. Um, we sort of talked up the West Side Story remake that's in theaters right now, yada, yada, yada. Um, so in 1998, when she makes The Parent Trap, I just I just like this one so much more than the Haley Mills version, and I, I think it's sort of an actor thing again. I just I just really prefer small Lindsay Lohan to medium-sized Haley Mills is, is basically what this comes down to. Um, they are the same length, even though I think they're both like 130 minutes, like 125 to 130 minutes. And when I was young, I thought The Parent Trap might have been the longest movie ever made. Um, and compared to, <laughs> compared to like the Disney animated stuff I was watching, it was in fact the longest movie ever made. Um, but there's, it just, it just feels so full. It's a very full movie. Um, I think it does a really nice job of, of going from summer camp to both parents to the camping trip. Um, I, I just think all of it is just a really nicely done family movie. Um, and of course, Lindsay Lohan is great in it. She's really good as both sisters. It is a very passable accent for the little British one um, that that I think is pretty good for, for a child her age. It's just a it's just a fun movie. Dennis Quaid's really goofy in it. Um, Natasha Richardson is really classy as as the mom. It just it's a movie that I have I have always liked a lot. Um, and whether or not it's an actually better movie than the Daniel Swift original is a is an entirely different question. I don't know. I don't think it matters. I think this is one of those movies where whichever one you come across first is the one where you're loyal to it. And I definitely have an outsized loyalty to the to the 98 Parent Trap. So if we like the Scorsese Cape Fear because of its absurdity, uh, I think the Simpsons episode does this even better. Uh, you know, chiefly in the rake gag. And... You know, throughout the whole thing, like right, sideshow Bob is doing all the near De Niro things, and even more, he's hanging onto the car. Uh, you know, the uh, the family sends an entire community of boathouse people away as soon as they get there and start laughing. Uh, right, this is the perfect. Um, oh, Grandpa goes insane in this yes. one. Like, right, this is the imperfect, perfect embodiment of that insanity that you're looking for in Cape Fear. You know, better people than I have written about it, but, like, Lindsay Lohan was good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I miss the days when she was good and, like, healthy. Um, I think she's struggling less now, maybe, hopefully. Um, but there's a reason Parent Trap kind of broke her. Not 
I should rephrase that, uh, like made her popular. Um, I don't know, just anecdotally, like I think her version of the parent trap is, is, I'm not surprised that it's the one that people younger than us see first, if not the only one they see, but like it still has, um, I don't know, like, people still still like it, I think. Like, I think it's still one they get too early, and that, like, has just a fond place in their heart, if nothing else. And, um, it's, it's a fun little movie. Like, I like The Parent Trap. It's cute, and it's funny, and it's nice. There's a certain level of wish fulfillment in it, too, that I think the 98 version plays up better. Um, because I think a lot of us who aren't twins, like, wished we had one. Like, I remember when I was little, like, I was like... Not like I was sitting around, like, wishing for it, but I'm like, oh, you know, like, it would be kind of cool to have, like, a twin brother or twin sister or something. And, like, thinking that what they were doing, just in terms of even, like, pretending to be the other one was kind of, like, goofy and, like, the kind of thing that a, how old were we, like, seven? Like, the kind of thing that a seven-year-old thinks is, like, really, really, like, smart and clever. Um, But there's also that wish fulfillment idea of, like, what if my parents were incredibly rich, successful people? (laughs) Like, what if my... What if my dad owned this super cool vineyard in Northern California? Or what if my mom were this, like, you know, highly successful and sought-after fashion designer? Like, that's kind of fun, you know? Like, there's there's a lot of wish fulfillment and a lot of, like, montages to sort of go with it um, that I think are just, like, really... I don't know, they're just neat. Like, it's the Nancy Myers, oh my god, I want that kitchen fantasy over again, but it's, like... It's tailored really nicely for for little suburban children. Like, I, I just find that really endearing. Um, and then finally, speaking of endearing, and this is, this is maybe not actually an endearing take, but I think it's kind of silly. Um, in 1999, uh, Stephen Summers releases his version of The Mummy, which is a very, very loose remake of the 1932 Carl Freund The Mummy, Uh, starring Boris Karloff, and I just want to start off by saying, I don't, I don't know that I want to say that the 99 The Mummy is a better movie than the 32 version. I mean, the 32 is really... Yes, you do, you coward. (laughs) I mean, I mean, here's the thing. So the 32 version is actually this incredibly interesting romance where Boris Karloff, who is not a sex symbol in any sense of the word, is really doing a very magnetic performance. Like, there's a lot of attention being given to the way that they can light his eyes to show this, like, incredible penetrating look, this incredible desire that he has held on to through the, through the centuries, through the millennia. And that is, that is very interesting, And I like The Mummy from 1932 an awful lot. Like, on the other hand, though, compared to your other Universal Monster movies, it it doesn't do it for me quite the same way. I think both Frankenstein movies are better ones. Um, I I really think The Invisible Man with Claude Rains is a better movie. I I sort of think that The Mummy is is even in a toss-up kind of thing with The Wolfman. Like... You know, when we talk about the classics of that genre from the 30s and early 40s, The Mummy is kind of at the tail end. And the thing about the 1999 The Mummy is that, speaking of movies with body counts, it did almost kill 
Brendan Gleeson in that hanging scene. Like, I think they had to resuscitate that guy. Um, and I wish someone would resuscitate his career in a similar way, because there is a really genial action star in here, and it is a movie which... I mean, it's the most perfect 90s iteration, which is to take, like, this classic 30s idea of a romance and then say, if we just jack up the budget by, like, <laughs> you know, the GDP of a small Pacific nation, you know, and just, like, go from there, maybe we can, um, maybe we can make this huge spectacle instead of this intimate love story with attitude, um... But it's, it's a lot of fun. It's very, very silly. But it's also incredibly watchable. Like, it's it's one of those movies, like, I, I think that it's easy to overstate how many good 90s action movies there are. Like, just as an example, I watched Cliffhanger the other day, and, like, Cliffhanger is fine. But, like, people will hold up the cliffhangers of the world as, like, weren't 90s action movies great. And for me, my 90s action movie, maybe it's more along the lines of The Mummy, which is not afraid to lean into some goofiness, um, which does have a number of, of kind of like quirky romance scenes where the quirky romance is now between Brendan Gleeson and Rachel Weisz, which is a very, very interesting pairing. Um, it's just, it's just... It has, like, Tintin energy. That's kind of where I am with it, is that it has this kind of exciting Tintin energy where anything can happen, and you're not meant to take it too seriously. Um, and you can just sort of, like Nickelback, turn your brain off and swallow popcorn by the gallon. Brendan Gleeson? I've been saying that, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine if this were actually Brendan Gleeson in this movie? I mean, I love him too, but <laughs> I really, I really want the Brendan Gleeson the Mummy. That's what I've decided. Is just this angry, chunky Irishman wandering around the desert, getting sunburned all the time. That's that's the goal, and that's all I really want. So, apologies to Brendan Fraser, who we love. Two, even if we can't remember who he is, and I really hope that everyone had a great time listening to the alternate version of the money <laughs> I was putting out there for you. Um, yeah, so Brendan Fraser, a, a really nice guy, and I feel like speaking of metaphors that are too apt, me just not saying the right name for the past eight minutes is is very much kind of his his career after he decided his wife was not getting any more of the money yeah uh, it, it's exciting seeing him in things again over like the last mm -hmm. i don't know how many months like really hoping for the <clears throat> well the brendan fraser who looks more like a chubby irishman now um i don't know if anyone I mean, if you know us, you know this, but like, if you need to hear our bona fides, uh, Brendan Fraser is a treasure to us both, uh, and responsible for at least one film that defines our senses of humor. So, um, we love you, Brendan Gleeson. We love you even more, Brendan Fraser. I, I think that's the right place to, to go from this. 
so those are my those are my remakes that again whether or not they're necessarily all that much better than the originals is probably doubtful but i know i like them more um even when the name arnold Vosloo is closer to the top of my brain than the name brendan fraser all right any other lingering thoughts about about desi's midnight runners number five here um, I don't think so. Uh, I guess if you need to turn your brain off, we gave you a lot of options for that today. Or if you want to do, uh, deep nuanced analysis of some things, we gave you options for that too. So I suppose a, a well-rounded decile here. Um, maybe I'll say just everyone go listen to Tori Amos and watch The Mummy right now. That seems like a good afternoon. A very good afternoon. We will see you next time.